I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. All right, guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. G'day, guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us Dr. Aaron Fagan Jeffries. And Aaron is an entomologist. Welcome, Aaron. Hey, guys. Now, you've got uh, in front of us right now a whole heap of specimens of little flying insecty things. Yes, yeah, so I've brought in a whole bunch of different wasps and bees and ants, so insects from the group we call the Hymenoptera. And you specialised in one of the, the, the smallest one that's here. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, can you tell us a little bit about that little guy? Yeah, so I study just one subfamily of wasps, um, and they're called the Microgastrinae, or Microgastrine wasps. And these guys are parasites of caterpillars. So the female wasp um, injects her eggs into the live caterpillar and then the baby wasps hatch out inside so they might look like little wriggling white maggots um, and they eat the caterpillar from the inside while it's still alive. So there might be one baby wasp in there, there might be a 100 baby wasps inside the caterpillar and so they'll chew away at its insides for days or weeks until eventually they burst out, um, form little cocoons and turn into adult wasps. That's sick. They're pretty, they're pretty <laughs> gruesome. Pretty gruesome. If you've ever seen the movie Alien, the Alien franchises, the um, monster in that was based off of parasitic wasps. So they've inspired some, uh, some gross stuff. <laughs> wow. So much happens, doesn't it? Like there's, I mean, just looking at the diversity that you've got in front of us right now, and there'd be, oh, there'd have to be hundreds of little native wasps. And yeah, things in the thousands, bush, wouldn't there? thousands, and thousands of of native wasps. But of course, most people don't know about them. When you say wasp, most people think of European wasps, the yellow and black, scary things that annoy you at your barbecue. Um, but most wasps are parasitic and small and brightly coloured and do all sorts of really cool things in the ecosystem. It's so interesting that they have that life stage where they're like a larvae. Mm-hmm. And they, 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 they live inside like a caterpillar. Yeah, yeah. So they go through what we call complete metamorphosis. So it has uh, the egg and then the larvae phase and then they go through metamorphosis to turn into the adult wasp. So you've probably heard of it in butterflies. Most people have heard of a butterfly goes through an egg and then a caterpillar and then it builds a cocoon and turns into the pretty butterfly or moth at the end. Um, but wasps do the same thing. It's funny, isn't it? Because kids love butterflies and people do butterfly gardens. No one's like... They're scared you know, of wasps. <laughs> that's right. yeah. like, I'll make a wasp garden. That'll, that's it. That'll but, get them on board. You know, we've got to get people to love the wasps because they're so important and, you know, so cool and so undiscovered. But that, there's some huge wasps in the, in the box that you've brought. Uh, do, do all wasps have the potential to sting you? They all have a stinger, but in a lot of wasps, it's modified into what we call an ovipositor. So the stinger is modified to lay the eggs inside their host. Um, and obviously, all the really small wasps, that stinger or ovipositor is really, really small. So it's not going to be able to pierce human skin. Ah, so an ovipositor is a modified stinger. Yeah, yeah. Made like a little needle that it can inject the eggs in to the host. It was only a couple of months ago that you got me stung by a wasp. Adrian, oh. and that was so <laughs> painful. European it was wasp? like a two forty volt bit of electricity thrown into my arm. I think it was a European wasp. Yeah. <laughs> they give, me, they give that, all wasps a bad name. The European wasps. Was it? Though? It was. It was. It was on a huntsman spider. Ah, so probably this group up here. So inside the box, I've got um, some bright orange and black wasps, and some blue and black wasps that are called pompilid wasps or spider wasps. And they are the spider hunting wasps. So they will um, dig a little burrow 
and then they will go and find a spider. So some will specialise on huntsmen. There's a species that specialises on redback spiders, some on trapdoor spiders, and they will go and find the spider, sting it and paralyse it so it's alive but it can't move. And then they'll drag it into the little burrow that they <laughs> What's built. What's going on? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They take the spider, drag it across your garden into the burrow, um, lay their egg on top of it, and then cover in the burrow so that when the spider, uh, sorry, when the wasp hatches out the egg, they've got fresh spider meat to eat. I think it was one of those that's. Still <laughs> is, that, is, yeah. is that still going to be in me? Did it? <laughs> I don't think it mistook you for a spider, but they do have a pretty nasty sting on them, but they're not generally very aggressive. Um, but this group of wasps, don't, they do have a pretty bad sting. So um, in the Schmidt Pain Index, I don't know if you guys have heard of that before. No. No. So it was a, um, a guy, uh, surname Schmidt, what it's named after, decided to work out what wasps and things had the most painful stings. So he deliberately went around and got stung by a whole bunch of different ants and wasps and then described how painful it was and ranked them from worst to least painful sting. And something very closely related to the spider wasps came out as one of the most painful. So, you know. Uh, you get stung by yeah. a spider wasp. The see. crying wasn't that bad. <laughs> <laughs> that was truly painful. It's quite shocking <laughs> when it hit. Yeah, well, you disturbed it getting its, you know, dinner for its babies. Well, to be fair, truth of the matter is, Someone actually knew it was there and rattled the bush so that it came and got me. <laughs> you rattled it and then ran off so that it came and stung me. Sorry, Steve. <laughs> I feel bad. I didn't know it was a spider wasp. I've been stung by paper wasp when I was picking mangoes in Queensland many years ago, and that was just like a little electric shock. Yeah. Some people react really badly to them. Some people say they don't hurt at all, so a bit divisive, the paper wasps. But they're one of the few social wasps we have in Australia. So like I said, most are parasitic, um, but paper wasps and European wasps, of course, are social. They'll form a colony structure, so they'll have a queen and lots of workers, um, and they'll build a nest. So that little paper nest that you might have seen, lots of little hexagon shapes. Um, it's what the paper wasps make. What, um, what, what good do wasps do for us on this planet? Oh, heaps of different things. Do they? Yeah. <laughs> so we Sting have... Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, wasps do all sorts of really cool things. So they're pollinators. So lots of people think of bees as being the ones who pollinate flowers and vegetables and that kind of thing. But wasps are pollinators as well. Um, and of course, they're parasitic. So all the animals or all the insects and arthropods. So that's animals with an exoskeleton. So things like spiders and scorpions and insects are all arthropods. Of course, if we didn't have anything parasitizing them and keeping the numbers in balance, you know, the environment gets out of control. So as parasites, they're really, really important. Isn't that funny? It's almost like a selling point, like they control spiders. Yeah, but they're wasps. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes if people really hate wasps, the way I can get them to get on board with the wasps is that they hate spiders more. So, you know. a, lot of people, a lot of people do hate spiders. I love spiders. I mean, there's so many really cool spiders. But there's so many really cool wasps. I mean, there's some really big, beautiful ones. We just, look, we just talked about spider wasps. Mm-hmm. Um I've seen these caterpillars a lot. These you've got what are those? What are they called? You yeah. see them in clumps. So uh, we're looking at a, a picture of a clump of kind of wriggly things that look like caterpillars, but they're actually wasp larvae. They're called spitfires um, or sawflies, um, and they're a group of wasps that are a really primitive kind of wasp. So early in the evolution of wasps, um, this group evolved that form these groups of kind of wriggling larvae. Um, that live on gum trees. You've probably seen them on those. They can be black or they can be yellow, a few different sorts of colours. 
um, and they will eventually go down into the ground, make a little burrow, and then they'll come out as a sawfly or a, a wasp. Um, but they're a kind of wasp that doesn't have the really tight constriction between its thorax and its abdomen that most wasps do, so that's how you can tell what they are. It doesn't have much of an hourglass figure like the other yeah, ones. Yeah, exactly. So they're quite like kind of spiny or prickly looking. Yeah, 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 big kind of yeah creepy looking things. And a lot of people probably think that they're the the larvae of of caterpillars, or sorry, the larvae of moths and butterflies, but they're larvae of wasps. That's funny, isn't it? I had no idea. Uh, do they have an irritation? Yeah, they can. One? Like, and that's where they get their Spitfire name from. So from the eucalypt oils, they can produce something that is quite irritating to some people. So wouldn't recommend going up and and touching them. I love them. And, like, you know, another thing that people probably don't realise about these kinds of things is they're food for other animals too, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, exactly, which is a huge part of how important insects are. And part of the, the issue with, that we think insects are declining is it's not going to just affect, you know, pollination and that kind of thing, but they're the bottom of the food chain. So if we start to lose lots of our insects, including our wasps, then, you know, the reptiles and the birds and all the animals that need to feed on those insects are going to be hurt as well. You added reptile in there just to get me yeah, on board. Yeah, just to get you guys on board with the wasps. <laughs> I gotcha. <laughs> I love wasps. <laughs> <laughs> now, my wife has just put together um, a native bee and bees, mm-hmm. a, a place for bees to go, our native bees to go. Will I ever find wasps in there? Yeah, you might. So there's a group of wasps there's that a horrible attack, story to that this, attack native bees. <laughs> so there's a, a group of wasps in the family Gastroptidae, and these wasps will actually lay their egg inside a bee nest cavity. So they'll sneak in before the bee has closed it off. So the bee will lay their egg inside and provision it with food for the larvae. And the wasp will sneak in and lay their egg inside so when the baby wasp comes out it can eat the food that the mama bee left and also the baby bee so yeah they're pretty cool you might see them flying around your uh, your bee nest it's really funny how they how they need other animals like they just why can't they just work it out themselves man (laughs) (laughs) it's like goring on everything (laughs) yeah the life of a parasite Mm. It's so funny. It's so interesting. You said there's one called a cuckoo wasp? Yeah, the cuckoo wasp. So these are often really bright metallic colours. So they can come in bright greens or blues or there's even a pinky coloured one. Um, And they get their name, of course, from the bird. So cuckoo birds are known to lay their eggs in other birds' nests. And cuckoo wasps do the same thing. So instead of making their own little burrow for their baby, they sneak along to another wasp or a bee nest where that mama's left a burrow and some food for their baby and they'll sneak in and lay their own egg in there so when the baby wasp patches out it's got fresh food to eat so good system i think that is a good system um are we concerned about any of the wasp species i mean do we know enough about them to know whether some of them are threatened that's the main problem really especially in australia is we haven't had a lot of long-term studies to look at whether insects are changing whether they're increasing decreasing Um, And we know so little. So for the parasitic wasps, we don't have names for 80% of the wasps that are out there. That's our estimation. So we don't even have a name for it, let alone know what it does in the environment, know whether it's increasing, decreasing, whether it'll be affected by climate change. You know, there's just so little that we actually have evidence for. And that'd probably be safe to say across the board. Like if you go to an area of scrub, you'd have that would be the same for like the moths. Yeah, yeah, basically for all insects in Australia. Um, But, of course, it's worse for the smaller things. So when people, um, you know, first started studying insects in Australia, they started studying the big colourful things. 
you know, your bright, shiny beetles, your big, colourful moths. And so all these, the little things, the little black wasps, you know, it takes a little bit more effort to, to try and get to work out what's going on there. And there's so many little things. I mean, I've often said on this show when I used to study plants and I'd take all my plant samples home to identify that evening. I'd have my, you know, my 10 times loop and my, my, my lamp and... Um, I would sit there and spend half of the time looking at the little inverts that were coming off the leaves that you don't otherwise see. But you can see where they've been because, I mean, as we had a walk around the property before and just about every leaf on every tree, like the gum trees and acacias, have been chewed by something. Yeah, yeah. There's so much out there. Now, you said you had a little net that you like to whisk through to, to catch things. Yeah, so I guess what I do is, is species documentation and, and study and we try and describe and name new species. Um, a lot of the time we use museum collections, stuff that's already being collected by other people, but we also sometimes need fresh specimens. Um, and mainly that's because we look at their DNA. So we need specimens that are fresh that we can still use the DNA from. So to catch a wasp, uh, we do a couple of different things. We go out with a net, so classic entomologist butterfly net, you know, if you Google entomologist cartoon, it's that kind of thing. But um, instead of running around catching butterflies with it, we use it to kind of sweep along vegetation. So brush the leaves of the trees and then you'll get lots of little insects falling into the net that you can then have a look at under a microscope and, and work out what's there. It's a lot nicer than the technique of just putting down a drop sheet under the tree and poisoning the entire tree. Yeah. <laughs> Is that what we, they used to do? Yeah, I don't know if they still they do. They still but, sometimes yeah. if they're doing like really um, large-scale surveys of an area and they basically want to capture everything, they do something called canopy fogging. So they, yeah, they'll basically put something in to knock everything out of the trees. Um, it's not a very selective way of, of looking at what's there and obviously there's probably a lot of specimen wastage so things that get collected that never get used or looked at but we don't need this bird wow yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's great how did you get into wasps well i got into insects mainly because as a kid i i always loved being out in the garden and you know crawling after bugs and that kind of thing but working out that you could do it as a career came from when i went as a kid to like a nature education place and they had stick insects there um, and they explained that you could keep these things as pets. So all through middle and high school I kept stick insects as pets and you know brought them in for show and tell and all that kind of thing and then in year 10 someone actually said oh you can get paid to do this like you can be an entomologist and study bugs forever and just figured that was the best best idea in the world so yeah. So you went from stick insects to wasps? Yeah, yeah. The wasp project came about um, just because it was what the lab I wanted to work in was studying. And so I went, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll study wasps. And, of course, the more you learn about something, the more passionate and excited you get about it. So now I'm hooked on wasps. I can imagine. I think it would be amazing to learn about them. It's funny, isn't it? You, you, you wouldn't think so, but when you start, you yeah, know, there's yeah, this, yeah. where do you fit it? You can't finish. There's so much to know. Yeah. I think I've, I've become engrossed just, just by looking at this box. We'll have to get a picture of that box to, to put on. Of the, all the specimens? Of, of the specimens, because, um, yeah, some of them are absolutely massive and beautifully colourful. And some of them are, are tiny. I mean, you know, millimetres. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And which is, I guess, one of the really cool things I like to do when we do outreach programs. So when we go to a school or if we're doing something where kids and families and adults are around, you know, putting a bunch of really tiny wasps under a microscope and allowing people to see all these really tiny things up close just, you know, blows people's mind. Like so many different shapes and sizes and colours that you just would never know were there. Once you get up close, it's a yeah. whole other world, isn't it? A terrifying world for some of the <laughs> yeah, when you learn about it. Yeah. An insect that's going to be parasitized. There should, yeah, there should be a, a, an age 
where you can't study wasps until you're 16 or something. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I'm traumatised and I'm 43. <laughs> no, kids are, you know, as you guys would probably know, kids are natural scientists, you know. They're so curious, they want to know yeah. about everything, they ask the best questions and they're not scared, you know. When they're young, they haven't had this fear installed in them that they have to be scared of things mm. like spiders and wasps, so... Get them while they're young. <laughs> now, this one looks like an ant, and they're in the same group, aren't they? They're all hymenoptera. Yeah, hymenoptera. So the ants are a specialised group that are um, so have evolved sociality, so they live in that colony structure, um, and they generally have lost their wings other than when they're the reproductive stage, so when they're exiting the colony to try and form new colonies. We call them the winged elates, um, and they'll have wings and fly out. So sometimes people get really surprised when they bring something in for us to identify and we tell them it's an ant when it's got wings. But, yeah. And then what's the difference between an ant and a wasp? Is that a, a question you can answer? Yeah, yeah. Well, ants are just a specialised form of wasp. So they're one group within the Hymenoptera um, that the family's called Formicidae and, and they're the ants. Formicidae uh, yeah. uh, as in they create formic acid. I'm guessing that. I'd have to Google that one. Check my facts before <laughs> I say, say stuff. <laughs> so, so ants and wasps and bees? Yeah, so mm. bees are another, I guess, we like to say they're just vegetarian uh, wasps. They're just a group <laughs> of the Hymenoptera that have evolved to eat pollen instead of eating uh, other insects. So instead of eating meat and protein, they, they eat pollen. But yeah, they're just fuzzy wasps. No, funny. What, why have you got in your box a... Um, is it a mole cricket? Yeah, so there's a mole cricket pinned in here. So mole crickets are crickets which you may see in your garden, especially if you live up in the Adelaide Hills or somewhere like that. Um, they're crickets that actually have their four legs um, that have evolved to have kind of big shovels at the front of their body because they burrow in the ground. So that's where they get their name from. They've got big legs like a mole to, um, to burrow. But I've got him because we've got a little wasp next to him that's actually the parasite of the mole cricket. So this is a wasp in the family Typhiidae. They're known as the flower wasps. And the females are wingless. So the females have lost their wings. They don't have wings anymore. And so they crawl around on the ground. And this species will look for mole crickets to, to parasitise. But the males have wings. So sometimes you can even find them on flowers joined. So the males will be flying around uh, attached to the female. So they'll be copulating. He'll be flying around and might even stop and feed her some nectar as they fly around. So, yeah, pretty cool thing to see on a flower. Wow. <laughs> Just insane. Amazing. There's so much to know. But every question I'm asking at the moment leads to something gory. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, that, Maybe that's just wasps. I mean, I mean, he was nice. I mean, he was feeding his, his missus. Well, he was, yeah. Uh, that, was that was quite nice. nice. Yeah. You romanticised yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what else is in the Hymenoptera? So you've got wasps, bees, yeah, ants. Wasps, and bees and ants. They're the three, three groups in the Hymenoptera and the sawflies, which are the primitive wasps, so the spitfires that we were talking about before. Ah, oh, okay. Yep, those prickly caterpillars. Yep that you see around. They're an awesome-looking animal. Wow, I yeah, had no idea. and you very rarely see the adults. Lots of people have seen the larvae, but seeing the adults is much rarer. How do you, like, study these things in the field? Is it just opportunistically you're bushwalking? Like, what's going on here? Like you. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, a lot of the time, if we're doing a survey somewhere, we'll actually set up a trap. So we'll set up a trap called a malaise trap. Um, so basically, it looks a bit like a tent uh, that's got a bottle of alcohol at the top, and so it's a passive trap. It doesn't have an attractant. And what it'll do will catch the um, the insects will be flying along. They'll bump into a vertical piece of tent, and then if you've ever had an insect in a jar, 
you might notice that it always tends to go up towards the light. So this trap works off that principle. The insects will climb up the tent right to the tippy top where it's nice and bright and fall into the alcohol. And that's how we'll collect them if we need to survey an area, work out what insects are there. Um, and collecting them in alcohol means we can preserve the DNA. That's interesting. I, I used to do reptile surveys and we'd collect the reptiles and the mammals from the pickful traps and the um, entomologists would take the inverts and put them in um, little jars of alcohol mm-hmm. and they'd stay alive forever. I felt really bad for these spiders just wiggle around for so long. Someone yeah. had drunk the alcohol and put water in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not the nicest part um, of the job is the, the collecting of specimens but unfortunately with insects it's just impossible to try and identify them in the field you know, while they're alive, you know, so it requires having them under a microscope. Sometimes it requires dissecting them and looking at all the tiny little structures inside them. So, <laughs> do you have um, like macro lenses on your camera and get out there and try to capture anything? Yeah, I myself don't do a lot of um, photography out there. There are some people who do some crazy stuff um, in Adelaide that James Dory's just published a book uh, with native bee uh, photos, which he's taken, which is so amazing. And yeah, people take some pretty cool macro photos. That's great. Do you think, um, like when you see people doing, we talked about butterfly gardens, mm-hmm. and now there's a big thing on bees, you know, yeah. and even native bees. Do, do you, um, would you like to see something happen with wasps? Is it? It's almost like saying, build a native garden and attract yeah, brown yeah. snakes, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. You, you yeah. Do you can have red is there anything wasps? we can do to help them? Do we want to help them? Yeah. <laughs> I guess the thing is, if people are, you know, conserving native vegetation and building gardens to save the bees they're going to be saving a whole bunch of native wasps at the same time so as much as I feel a bit bad that bees get all the attention and everyone loves bees and people still are not so fond of wasps you know by conserving that habitat you're conserving everything that's inside it so they're a bit of a you know they're the dolphin of the of the garden everyone can get on board with those and in the in the way help everything else that maybe isn't as pretty and fuzzy and cute do you just call bees the dolphin of the garden? Yeah. <laughs> you know, everyone wants to, you know, save the dolphins wow. and save the whales, but if you can save an area, you can save everything, everything. that's inside it. So that's, do we yeah. think any of those wasps are endangered or anything? Or are any in trouble? Most likely, yeah. We just know so little about them, you know, to know whether they are declining or what's going on. Um, but it would be, you know, very surprising if there weren't endangered species in in our insects in Australia. I mean, we certainly know we've got a lot of endangered plants and a lot of plants that are quite specialised, like some of the orchids and different things. Yeah. Um, so some of those might just have a, a relationship with like a single species of wasp. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, a lot of people know about endangered butterflies and we have a bit more data on that. And each species of butterfly probably has a couple of species of wasps that rely on it. And so if we start getting those things becoming extinct, the parasites are going to become extinct as well. So... Yeah, definitely. You get that joint thing. One interesting thing that we saw earlier walking around this property, the bulbuses on the trees. Yeah, so we were looking at some galls on acacia. Uh, So we had two species of acacia here, was that right? Um, Two that we looked at, yeah, I've got several others, but we looked at the golden wattle. Mm -hmm. And the first one we saw was acacia longifolia. Yeah, and both of these had a different species of gall wasp on it. So these are wasps where the baby wasp, the little larvae, starts interacting with the plant and it forms this kind of round um, bulbous thing on the plant which then the larvae lives inside before it turns into a wasp. So two species of gall wasp on your property. So the plant 
reacts to it by... Yeah, yeah, and forms that gall around it as a defence mechanism. It's so weird, isn't it, that the wasps can make other life forms bend to their will. Yeah, yeah, which is... They're evil, I would. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so there's been, you know, and parasites do lots of really crazy things. So the wasps that I study that um, inject the caterpillars, there's some uh, studies showing that they can influence what the caterpillar eats. Um, change the kind of pheromones the caterpillar's putting out, all sorts of really crazy things. Um, there's, of course, the very famous uh, zombie wasp. Have you guys heard of that one? The cockroach zombie wasp? Do we have no? to? <laughs> <laughs> Tell another horror Go story. <laughs> so the, uh, the cockroach wasp, what it does is it'll um, sneak up on the cockroach and it uh, stings it in the brain, so it's got to get it right in the head, in the neural structure, which paralyzes the cockroach. It then breaks off a little bit of its antennae and sucks a little bit of the hemolymph, which is what we call insect blood, um, to check if it's got the right amount of paralytic agent in there. And if it's all good, it'll basically just kind of tug on this cockroach's antennae and the cockroach will just kind of follow it. So, the, you know, it's, it's just turned basically into a zombie. So the cockroach just follows the wasp, it drags it along to its burrow where it, just like the spider wasp, lays the, lays the egg and the baby wasp has fresh zombified cockroach to eat Whoa. So they're pretty cool that's unreal that is amazing and the spider wasp we talked about earlier mm-hmm. do they do anything similar to that with spiders they don't zombify them they just paralyze them okay. so those ones can't move they'll have to physically drag them into a burrow themselves okay. which is pretty crazy seeing a wasp drag a huge huntsman across your veranda it is pretty crazy I've seen it a few times now <laughs> um, yeah I've got this crazy picture of a, of a wasp doing all that stuff to a cockroach mm-hmm. and almost walking with a lead on it. Come on. Yeah, that's yeah, that's these that's ones. That's sort of the what it's doing. Ones. It's crazy. How did it work out it can do yeah, that? Some evolution will never know, is crazy. That is yeah. unbelievable. But the other spider ones people might see around their house are the mud daubers. So these are, they make a little um, white or brown kind of little mud cocoon that you often see or if you've got a brick house, you might see them attached to your bricks. And so they'll do the same thing as the pompillas, which burrow the spiders in the ground, but they'll actually bring the spider up to their little mud cocoon and um, seal it inside that way. I think I've got some of those here. Yeah, cool. I think I've got some of mine. Yeah, are they common around houses? Yeah, 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 Yeah. because they seem to like the bricks to stick their little mud mud cocoons onto. So those wasps have a really long... um, area in between their thorax which is the middle part of insects that the wings and legs attached to and their abdomen which is where all the guts and the, the heart and all that kind of thing is so they're known as the speckered wasps or speckidae so that that really long bit in between the thorax and the abdomen helps you identify those and are they native yeah 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 we got lots of native species of those in australia what's their biggest wasp probably a pompilid how big is that we don't get too many bigger than than those guys in Australia, the pompilid wasps. So we're talking 20 mil plus? Yeah, two or three centimetres. It's it's terrifying, (laughs) isn't it? It's funny because I'm trying to, like, be adequately terrified and try to promote people to be into wasps. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) not to freak people I'm not, I'm just... Just terrified. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so do we get that zombie wasp in Australia? No, not here in Australia. We have other wasps that attack uh, the cockroaches here in Australia, but not the one that does the crazy zombie stuff. Uh, it's interesting because a lot of people, you know, especially in recent decades, have been into 
you know, having pet snakes and they're mm-hmm. an animal that people normally don't want to know anything about. Um, and people keep tarantulas and things. I wonder if people will, maybe not keeping wasps as pets may not be feasible, but like people like yourself, might, may, may, maybe there'll be a new, how do we, see where I'm heading with this? A new mm-hmm. influx of people being interested in wasps. I'm just, I'm just thinking you want a wasp as a pet. Right? Is, it, is that all right? <laughs> maybe one of these like, terrestrial ones. You know, it's all about, I guess, trying to get people to know that there's more out there in their garden. You know, if they can appreciate some of the little things and even know that they exist, that's a big step forward into them being able to hopefully feel a bit more connected to the environment and then want to help conserve it and look after it. Um, so some of my job as a taxonomist is obviously to document what's around us and then to give it a name. So sometimes we have a bit of fun with the names to try and attract a bit of media attention and then get people interested in the wasps and learn about them that way. So my most recent one was named after Oreo chocolate biscuits because uh, the antennae had um, a big white stripe in the middle of the brown antennae like a chocolate Oreo biscuit is brown, white, brown. So we named it after Oreos. That's awesome. Yeah. I like that. That's it. I think you should have a bit of fun with scientific names and common names and things now. Definitely. And if it gets people interested, it's a good idea. I mean, there's a plant on this property that's got a beautiful pink flower. It's a local native plant, but its common name is Pink-Eyed Susan. (laughs) You know, I'm embarrassed to say it. And I don't want to sound like a pompous twit and use a scientific name either. Um, So that's that's great. Yeah. It's a good way, I think, to try and just break down the barriers as well, you know, in science, we use Latin to describe animals and to give them their names. But if we can make the names a little bit more relatable for people, then, you know, they're going to be able to feel a bit more connected to what we're doing and to what's around them. It's a great idea. I love your passion for biodiversity. I mean, we share that. And there is so much out there. And there, you'll never see it all. You know, even just on a small block of remnant bush, you will never see it all. And there's so much more, like we said, with moths, butterflies, cockroaches. I mean, when we went for a walk with you, you're spotting all these different ants. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, ones that look very similar, but they're very different. And yeah. you, you got a good eye for detail there. Yeah, you have, have to get there. So some of the, you know, when we're describing a new species, it might be different from another wasp by just the number of hairs on it or by you know the little structures that are on its body so you've definitely got to get your eye in for detail you can't you can't help but be fascinated when you hear what they do in life as much as it's quite cringeworthy sometimes (laughs) but with with what they do and what they've evolved to do in life and how some of them look with what i'm looking at in your box um it's just amazing you can't help but be fascinated by them yeah cool my job's done then yeah (laughs) even me (laughs) converted the reptile person to the wasps (laughs) i wouldn't say that (laughs) you start breeding wasps so you you, a big part of your job is like the looking at the taxonomy and Mm -hmm. looking at how many different species there are and some of these things are pretty similar so how do you work out what's a new species yeah so as well as looking at what it looks like so you know comparing them under a microscope and seeing whether something is the same as something that's already described. Uh, We also use their DNA. So when we were talking about collecting insects in alcohol, that's to preserve that DNA so that we're able to extract it. So when we get the specimens back to the lab, we'll um, euthanise them, we'll pull off a couple of legs, um, crush that up and get the DNA out. So we do what's called a DNA extraction. And then we use a little bit of DNA that we call a barcode. So it's a piece of the DNA that is different between species but the same within a species so you would have the same barcode as another human but a different barcode to say a rabbit or a wasp and the closer together that little barcode is 
the more similar the species are. So it helps us know whether something is the same or different without having to go through that really laborious process of looking at it under the microscope and comparing the number of hairs on its back or how big its eye is in relation to its forehead and that kind of stuff. So that can literally be the difference between a species is, is number of hairs. Yeah, yeah, especially with these really tiny wasps because they're so small, there's not a lot of room for lots of different characters and they all do similar things in the environment. So evolution hasn't kind of changed and made lots of modifications in the different species. So, yeah, really tiny differences. It would be so hard as well, like out in the bush, to, to follow one of these tiny wasps and to find out what they are preying on yeah exactly which is part of the problem especially with we're trying to often work out what it's doing in the environment we want to know what caterpillar it attacks and each one of these wasps will generally only attack one or two species of caterpillar this little subfamily that i work on they're what we call really host specific um so each wasp one species of caterpillar or a couple related species of caterpillar But, of course, when we catch them in a trap or when we're looking in an old pinned museum collection, we've got no idea what caterpillar it's come from, um, which is, you know, pretty hard to then work out what it's doing. So my most exciting day is when I get a package from someone who's been rearing caterpillars and hoping to get a butterfly or a moth out and instead they get wasps out because suddenly we then have the wasp specimen and we know what caterpillar it came from, which can then help us if it's a pest caterpillar or something that might be a pest somewhere else we then know what wasps might be able to be used in biological control okay so you mean pest as in like in the agricultural yeah, sector? yeah in the agricultural sector so there's um some studies uh done here in australia where we've actually brought in wasps to attack at the invasive caterpillar pests in agricultural crops so the potato wasp is the famous one so we had potato crops in australia getting damaged by um, the potato moth and then because the taxonomy was done and we knew what wasp attacked that caterpillar and we knew it wasn't going to attack any of our native moths, we could import that from South America and it helps control the pest uh, in the crop, which is pretty cool. So if you love chips, if you love potatoes, then you have to love wasps because they uh, help control the pest so that we can keep growing potatoes in Australia. I do love potatoes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm on board now. <laughs> but uh, but that would be how you would get funding as well if it's something to do yeah, with... Yeah, yeah, which is, I guess, you know, it's that um, direct benefit, which is hard to show sometimes with this really fundamental science. You know, documenting our biodiversity is so important, but a lot of the time you need to justify, you know, what is going to be the direct benefit of this research. So if we can find some more wasps that might be useful in biological control that might attack you know invasive pests or might attack you know native australian caterpillars that then are becoming pests overseas say on eucalypt plantations or something like that um then we can you know really make an impact in that sector some of the native orchids really look a bit like a wasp yeah i know there are orchids which will mimic the female wasp so that the male wasp will come and try and you know, copulate with what they think is the female wasp and in that way they pollinate it. Um, but I don't know any of the specifics about it. So the plant's getting one over on the wasp? Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, a she... wasp wouldn't be dumb enough to fall for that. <laughs> <laughs> Last year I had an uther in my garden. Ah, yeah, a mantis. That I was, yeah, yeah. That I was watching and really super excited about it and then all of a sudden little flying things ah, yeah, out. they would have been wasps as well so there ah. are wasps that attack mantis uthicas 
Um, and you can always tell when they've been there if you find the old Uthikas on trees because they'll have lots of little pinprick holes in them that the wasps have, have come out of. It's pretty cool. But I once had a, I demonstrate in the third year uh, insect course at Adelaide Uni, so I help out in the practicals. And the students have to make a collection of 150 different insects as part of that course, so they learn all about how to identify insects and how to preserve them and pin them and make a proper scientific collection. Um, and we had a student put in an Uthaka that he'd obviously just found on a tree and, and put in the collection, and we went to market and opened it, and out came 200 little mantises that had come out between him handing it up and us opening it just exploded out of the box so wow. yeah, at least it was mantises and not uh, not wasps so could it fly yeah. surprise yeah. <laughs> I love it and I'm, look I mean I'm on board because you know and I'm sure I'm speak for Steve and we're just about biodiversity and like you said there important links in the ecosystem, largely of which we don't even understand. Yeah, exactly. Um, There's so much going on. You know, you've got a caterpillar, you've got a wasp that attacks a caterpillar. We then, inside the wasp is also a virus that uh, helps <laughs> <laughs> suppress the caterpillar's immune system. I'm trying to help you here. <laughs> <laughs> you, keep, you keep digging. <laughs> so, like, um, I was saying these wasps are really host-specific. So each of this group of wasps, the microgastrion, we think only attacks one or two kind of caterpillars. And part of the reason they're so host-specific, they can't attack all the caterpillars, uh, is because they use a virus, a symbiotic virus. So symbiosis is where two uh, organisms help each other out and, you know, they need each other to survive. Uh, so it has a symbiotic virus that's inside the wasp that doesn't hurt the wasp, but it injects it into the caterpillar. So the caterpillar's immune system is suppressed and that stops the immune system of the caterpillar attacking the wasp egg. So that virus is really specific. So if a wasp injects it into a caterpillar that it's not supposed to parasitise, then the immune system isn't suppressed and the wasp egg won't survive. Ah. So pretty crazy form of evolution. It's only happened a couple of times in the wasps is they've evolved this symbiosis with viruses, which is really crazy. Do you think one day humans will be able to synthesise some of these chemicals and use them to our advantage? Yeah, quite possibly. Oh, 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 and I think, <laughs> well, it's actually already happening. So there's studies that are done uh, that use chemicals that are synthesised by things that would attract, you know, pests and that kind of stuff to attract the things that um, attack those pests. So, yeah, there's some pretty cool science out there. A lot of work to be done. It's, it's amazing that these wasps can do some of these things, but what is really amazing is that you guys study them and find out. these. The, the, it's just so interesting. How the hell do we know that? Well, people like you study them and find that out. Yeah, it's that really great. fundamental science, I think, which is, you know, it's hard to sometimes justify, but it's so important for understanding the world around us. It's that really basic, you know, what's out there and what's it doing. I love that. That was really, really good. <laughs> yeah. That's terrible. It's blown away by yeah. it. And that's nightmare stuff. Are most wasps active during the day? or? Yeah, most will be diurnal. Yeah, so active during the day. Well, most you know, most insects are active during the day because they need the heat the heat to, to move and survive. So they're not, um, they're cold-blooded, I guess. Uh, so they, you know, need the heat from the sun and that kind of thing to, to be able to move around. Do, do like, wasps parasite on people? Or do they not, like, just no, no, they don't. And that's so one of the things kids always ask me is, what well, if a wasp stings me, will I get 
Paris Fairs. Yes, they did. I had to. I love it. I love it. There's something the kids always ask me. No, they won't. Even if they did decide to inject an egg in you, which they wouldn't because they know that you're not their host, um, your immune system would just, you know, kill it straight away. I believe in you, Steve. <laughs> I'm not sure it will. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's so cool. Erin, thank you so much. Um, are there any good books in Australia for, for our, our hymenoptera, like the wasps and bees and ants and things like that, that people can probably get hold of? Or There's lots of amazing field guides out there. If you head to places, you know, like the South Australian Museum shop and that kind of thing, there'll be some really good field guides there. I imagine it'd be pretty addictive when you get into it. Erin, thank you so much for coming on. No worries, that was a lot of fun. Thanks. <laughs> I've traumatised you with a, <laughs> with fun, a lost horror yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to be out of sleep now for a week. <laughs> no, that was absolutely amazing. Thank you. Sure was. Um, thank you again. And guys, thank you for listening.